0: The Gospel text asks us a question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And the Old Testament reading for the day, one of them, the story of Jacob and his encounter by the river Jabbok, is an answer, not only to whether or not faith will be found, but what kind of faith will be found when the Son of Man comes to us. I... I want to come to that reading first, though, by giving you some backstory for those who might not know it. We're going to start in Genesis 25. Again, some of this may be familiar to some of you, but for those who might not know it, I want you to, to hear the way in which the text speaks about the rivalry that dwell, dwells, develops between Jacob and Esau, the rivalry in which they live and which separates them. This is the story of brothers. And in fact, the book of Genesis can be read as a story of brothers losing each other again and again. Of course, the the foundational story is the story of Cain and Abel, in which one brother kills the other. And so through the book of Genesis, we again hear about other brothers, Jacob and Esau in today's text, And by the end of Genesis, as we open out into Exodus, we have another set of brothers, Esau, not Esau, Moses and Aaron, who have reconciled and serve each other. And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who passed away a couple of years ago, I heard him in a lecture once make the point that what we have from the story of Cain and Abel in the beginning to the story at the beginning of Genesis to the story of Moses and Aaron at the beginning of, of Exodus is a trajectory of brothers who are in rivalry learning to love one another, learning to reconcile. And right at the heart of that trajectory, of the movement from Cain and Abel, fratricide, one brother murdering another out of jealousy and envy, to Moses and Aaron, these brothers collaborating to bring God's people to freedom. What we have right in the middle of that is the story of Jacob and Esau, which is a story that we, we don't know terribly well, although we are very familiar with it. It's, it is perhaps too familiar, right? And the complexity of the story is lost on us. The ambiguity of the story is often lost on us, in part because as Americans, we don't tolerate ambiguity very well. We have a kind of allergy to nuance. Right? We thrive on that which is unmistakable, that which is plain. But I've told you many times, the plain reading of Scripture is never the good one because the, the reading of Scripture that shows that it's God's Word is salty. It, it is and assault on what you've presumed. So let's, let's listen to this story again, a story that we somewhat know but need to know better, and ask how it answers that question. Will the Son of Man find faith? And what kind of faith will he find? Genesis 25. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took his wife, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramaean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord heard his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. Now, part of the genius of Israel's storytelling is that you have decades of pain compressed into one sentence. Isaac prayed for his wife because she was childless, and the Lord heard his prayer, and she conceived. Now, that's not, that seems as if it happened quickly, suddenly. She notices she cannot have a child. He prays, and she does. But in fact, that is two decades or more of pain that are compressed into this one brief description. But when she is with child, she bears twins, and the children inside her struggle against each other. The children inside her struggle against each other. And she says, why is this happening to me? And you get a sense of the humanity of this moment, right? After years and years of praying to have a child, now she's pregnant with twins, and yet she's sure that this pregnancy is going to kill her. Why is this happening to me? So she inquires of the Lord. She prays. And the Lord speaks this word to her. According to Genesis, two nations are in your womb. Two people will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, in English, that sounds pretty straightforward. It sounds like a promise that these two boys are going to be born, they're going to separate, and... The older, who has the right of authority, the right of family inheritance, is actually going to serve the younger. And because we've been reading Genesis, and because we come to these texts with some familiarity already of chosenness and election, we have a sense that we know what that means. But actually, the phrasing in Hebrew is ambiguous. It can mean either that the older will serve the younger, or it can simply mean the older, comma, the younger will serve. The older, the younger will serve. So it's like perfectly designed, the sentence is, to be taken either way. And that kind of ambiguity, that kind of pitch where the water can run one way or another way, depending on how you hear it, depending on what's already in your heart, what you presume, sets up all of the conflict that is to follow. So here's a woman who has a miraculous birth, and then it is incredibly painful. Painful in an entirely different way from those years of childlessness. And she cries out to God, why am I in this pain? And God's answer is because you're going to have two peoples, two sons, two nations. They're going to separate. And then either the older will serve the younger or the younger will serve the older exactly as expected. And it can be heard either way. But this ambiguity hangs over the family because she hears it a very particular way as as the mother when the time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat. Not a terribly beautiful child. I mean, I'm sure they, they found it to be beautiful. But red and hairy as if, a, as if covered in fur, and they named him Esau. Esau. After this, his brother came out, grasping Esau's heel with his hand. So he was named Jacob. So he was named Jacob. So he's th- this, these are twins. They're born in the same moment. But given the way that the woman's body is shaped, one comes first, just a nanosecond first. And the second one comes already clinging, already holding to his heel. And he's named Jacob because of that. And, and the name Jacob means literally heel grabber. But more metaphorically, it suggests the one who follows closely the one who's on our heels. And it's probably intended as a way of naming God. God is the one who's on our heels. The God who follows us. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The name in and of itself is not a curse. The name in and of itself does not label Jacob as someone who is deceptive and grabbing for power. But of course, it can be heard that way because the word Jacob is also a play, not just on heel grabber, but usurper or deceiver or supplanter. And so in that ambiguity of the promise, the older, the younger will serve, or that this name, we start to feel the ways in which this family is receiving words and are giving words that are freighted. They can be heard either way. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game. And again, the story has this kind of perfect pitch of ambiguity. Does it mean that Isaac loves his son Esau because Isaac loves the taste of wild game and Esau gets it for him? Or does it mean that he loves Esau because Esau has this wildness about him that he delights in, even though he cannot participate in it? It could be heard either way. Regardless, we hear that Isaac loves Esau and Rebekah loves Jacob. Now, we often tell these stories as if these families, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, Solomon, the prophets, as if these people are saints in the way that we imagine sainthood. Part of the genius of Israel scripture is that it never lets us imagine these people as superhuman. It is constantly reminding us that these people are not only flawed, they're shattered. They're shattered in exactly the same way that we are. And that their families have the exact rifts that our families have. So here you have, I know this is not supposed to happen, we're not allowed to say this, but we have favorites in the family. And the father loves the older son, older just by a a breath, and the mother loves the younger son. And strikingly, we're told that the father loves the older son for some reason, but she simply loves Jacob. There's no reason given. But I think I can supply it. She senses the imbalance in the, the father's love for the older son. And she seeks to make it up. But also, of course, we know the word she's received, and now we have a sense of how she's heard it. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red, red stuff. That's what he says. Let me eat some of that red, red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. So here we have men who are grown. One who's a stay-at-home dad, not yet a dad, a stay-at-home-to-be dad. And we have an older brother who's a a man of the field. Field and stream magazine cover image. right? And he comes in, Esau comes in from the field. He sees that Jacob is making this red, red stuff. Obviously, he's eager, desperate. And now we realize that Jacob knows the story of the promise God has given his mother. That there is a rivalry between them that has gone on all of their lives that the text didn't mention that's suppressed below the level of conscious awareness. And this is exactly how our lives are lived, that most of what's happening in our lives remains unnamed, unseen, unreflected on. It's happening below the surface. We don't talk about it, at least never directly. I mean, maybe your family's wildly different from mine, but most of the stuff that's really happening, we don't talk about. And when we do talk about it, we talk about it at an angle. We glance off the surface of it. We make insinuations. We imply things. And we all know what's being said, but we never say what we mean quite. Maybe this is just a sermon for me. But I'm doing therapy in front of all of you. But he says, sell me your birthright. Sell it to me. He's wanting to do something out in the open, something that's not deceptive, something that's not in any way supplanting. He's just asking saying, listen, if you don't care about it, why don't you sell it to me? I'll give you this bowl of red, red stuff, and you give me the right to the family inheritance. And Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Now, it says that he's a full-grown man, but this sounds like a teenager to me. Right? Like, I'll give up the, my entire future for this one bowl of red stuff. right? I'm reading from my teenage son's Bible today. I'm going to mark this passage for you, club. So I'll I'll give you my entire future if you'll just give me this bowl of soup, stew. And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away and despised his birthright. Now notice the birthright, the promise was, again ambiguously, that the older the younger will serve. That's hung over their family to this moment. And in this moment, Esau's like, fine, you can have it. Just give me the stew. And he gets it by purchasing it. There's no deception here. There's no lie. I want it. You sell it to me. He sells it to him. But that's not the end of the story. Two chapters later, we hear that Isaac is dying. It's his last days, he thinks, and so he sends Esau into the field. You know this story, at least the, the broad shape of it. He sends him into the field to kill, and prepare, to kill game and prepare a last meal for him. And when he goes away, Rebekah comes and says, I've heard your father has sent Esau into the field. This is the moment. Quick, cover yourself with skins. Take this food that I've prepared. Obviously, she's plotting, She's waited for this moment all of their lives. She received that word when they were in her womb. Now, all of these years later, as grown men, she seizes this moment and says, Go in and tell your father that you are Esau, so that he will give you the blessing. Now, he's already purchased the birthright, but notice he's not talked about it to anyone. As I said, most of what's happening in our lives just goes unnamed, unseen. So he says, and we won't take time to read it, but he says to her, Mom, listen, I want it. I want the blessing. But if I go in and pretend to be Esau and he recognizes me, I will be exposed as a deceiver. And now we realize that not only has that promise hung over this family, the ambiguity of the older, the younger will serve, but also that name has hung over this man. Am I, Jacob, the one who follows closely after like God who is with us, or am I the supplanter? Was I grabbing at my brother's heel because I want to follow, because I want to cling, because I want to be near, or was I grabbing because I was trying to claw my way out first? Am I really a deceiver? If I do this, Mom, and I get caught... I'm going to be exposed as a deceiver. And she says, let your curse be on me. Do what I say. And he does. He goes in and Isaac hears the voice and recognizes the voice. But then when he feels the skin, he thinks this is it. And of course, he's caught up in the taste and the smell of the food. And he gives the blessing. And we pick the story up right at that point. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had left the presence of his father Isaac, his brother Esau arrived from the hunt. He had also made some delicious food and brought it to his father. Then he said to his father, let my father get up and eat some of his son's game so that you may bless me. But his father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am Esau, your firstborn. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. Who was it then, he said, who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it before you came in, and I blessed him. Who was it? He will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he cried out a bitter cry and said to his father, bless me too, father. But he replied, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing." Now, notice he's put two and two together, as we say. Who was it then who came? I know who it was because all of that unspoken stuff that has been boiling below the surface has now exploded. It's now surfaced. And he knows this is what we were afraid Jacob would be, and that he says, Your brother has come deceitfully and took your blessing. And then Esau speaks. Isn't he rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me twice. He took my birthright, and look, now he has taken my blessing. Now that's not quite true, is it? He didn't cheat him twice, at least not in the same way. This is clearly a cheat in which he pretends, Jacob pretends to be Esau, says that he's Esau, and says that God has called him to do this uses God's name to justify it. But in the first case, Esau simply sold him his birthright. And yet, in this moment of anger, Esau voices that that he had been holding all of his life. Yes, you are rightly named Jacob, because you're not just the one who holds the heel. You are a deceiver. You're a supplanter. And so now we come to the reading for the day. Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, This is God's camp. So Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He commanded them, You are to say to my lord Esau, This is what your servant Jacob says. This is what your servant Jacob says. Even though he has the birthright, and even though he has the blessing, He's still interacting with his brother 20 years later as his servant. This is what your servant, Jacob, says. I have been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my Lord in in order to seek your favor. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you and he has 400 men with him. Now we skipped a lot of details in this story, but again and again in the story we've been told that Esau intends to kill his brother. Jacob knows, without a doubt, that Esau is angry with him, deeply grieved, resentful, bitter, and has every intention of killing him. In fact, in this very moment, he decides to separate his family into two camps. And he does so probably aligned with his different wives because he thinks that Esau is going to come and destroy one camp and hopefully at least the other one will be left. But that dividedness, that sense of I can't have everything so I have to divide myself, like that has marked his entire life. That dividedness. These two brothers are separated but Jacob himself is separated. Who is he? Is he the one who follows closely, or is he the supplanter? Is he the deceiver? We know that he doesn't want to be seen as the deceiver, at least. Almost certainly, there's a part of him that doesn't want to be deceitful at all, and yet there's a part of him that is grasping, that is hungry for. If Esau is hungry for red, red stuff, now you're all thinking red, red wine, and we're going to sing that the rest of the day. If Esau's hungry for that, Jacob's hungry for blessing, for power, for privilege, for for something else. And yet, that's not all he is. He's divided. And so that leads us, all of that leads us directly to this. During the night, this is the reading for the day, the Old Testament reading for the day. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female slaves, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, along with all his possessions. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. A man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck, or touched is a better translation, Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asks, what is your name? What is your name? Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For I have seen God face to face, he said, and I have been delivered. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. Now, this again is a story we're familiar with. Except we think of this this encounter, this moment, as an encounter between, it's often referred to as, Jacob wrestling with the angel. But the story is more ambiguous than that. We also think of this as a moment of conversion, in which Jacob goes from being Jacob to being someone else. Goes from being a bad man to a good man. But again, the story is more ambiguous than that. First of all, the text says it's a man who meets him there. And if we had... All of the time in the world, we could talk about the history of interpretation of this passage. Who is this man who comes and wrestles with Jacob? And there's every possible answer you can imagine. There are psychological answers that this is in some way in a dream and Esau has come to Jacob. Or this is Jacob coming to himself, his own estranged self meeting him. There are spiritual answers that this is the guardian angel of Esau coming to Jacob stop Jacob coming to confront him. There are those who argue theologically that it's God who meets him here. And and Jacob does say at the end, I have seen God face to face. But this, I think, is the crucial point. The text won't tell you who it is. Who is this man who surprises him at night by the, by the river, we don't know, but what matters is through the wrestling, through the night, through the wrestling, something happens in Jacob in which he does see God face to face. Whoever this is, if it's Esau, if it's Jacob, if it's a guardian angel, if it's psychological or spiritual, whatever it is, in that wrestling, he comes face to face with God. And this is how we know he comes face to face with God. He realizes who he truly is. I want to point out another detail in the text. Notice what the man says to Jacob. Once he asks him, what is your name? And Jacob answers. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And this is not a statement about what's happening in this moment. This is a statement about Jacob's entire life. This man says to him, listen, you are not Jacob. You are Israel. You have all of your life struggled and you've prevailed. You're not a supplanter, a deceiver. You're an overcomer. You're a victor. You are a lordly one, not a devious one. You've not come here because you've cheated your way here. You've come here because you've wrestled your way here. And you've wrestled with me all night, and that's how I know who you are. And notice this again, the genius of this text. The very next verse then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. Now, he just said, You won't be called Jacob anymore. But if you know Scripture, and I'm assuming all of you do, he continually is referred to as Jacob from this point. So that Israel does not replace the name Jacob, but crowns it. It brings clear what was always true of this boy. So that cloud that hung over the family, the cloud that hung over him, am I a deceiver or am I one who follows closely? Now is clear. This is what Jacob meant always from the beginning. Jacob was never a name for a deceiver. It was the name for someone who was going to prevail. Israel reveals the truth of Jacob, the name. Now, one more passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to draw all of this together, hopefully. Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews is recounting, this is, of course, the the chapter of faith, celebrating all of those who, by faith, have shown us the way toward God. And Right in the midst of all that, sorry, I should have marked this earlier. Right in the midst of all that, we're, we get this word about Jacob. Listen to what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now this, if, again, As Americans, we don't pay attention to what's in front of us. But listen to the text again, thinking about the story I've been telling you this morning. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, why is he leaning Because he limps. Why does he limp? Because he was touched by the God he wrestled with. By wrestling with his own past, by wrestling with what he had done and what he wanted to do, what he had said and what he had left unsaid, by wrestling with his whole history in the presence of God, he has a limp that makes him lean, but he has, out of that, come to worship and come to bless. So remember, the story we were reading, it's as Isaac is dying that all of this shatters the family. The blessing that he's speaking when he's dying divides the boys. But when Jacob is dying, his blessing unites sons. Now, How did he come to be the one who's born into conflict, born under the shadow of a prophecy of division and disruption, into the man whose blessing reconciles? Because he wrestled with God. Because he wouldn't leave well enough alone because he kept insisting on being heard. He kept showing up. You have wrestled with God and prevailed. He made himself by fighting with God, by fighting with himself over and over and over and over again until the truth of who he was shone out. Notice the text also says that Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau by faith. So that the writer of Hebrews is saying, now that we see the big picture, now that we see what God was doing all along, what that little family thought was a rivalry between two brothers. One will be blessed and the other will not. In God's working was simply the way in which both boys are blessed. And the ambiguity of that first promise, the older the younger shall serve, was not, you won't know which one will have authority, but that both are true. Esau is blessed and Jacob will serve him. And precisely as the one who serves, Jacob will be the one who is blessed. That in what looked to us like ambiguity was just the mystery of God reconciling all things. That what seemed like nonsense and broke a family apart was in fact God just gathering everyone out of two camps into one. How does this matter for you and for me? I hope some of it's already clear, but this is the heart of it if you look at what can be seen, your name, your history, is at best ambiguous. For everything that could be named as a strength in you, other people standing in different light will see it as a weakness. For every good thing you've done, there are some people in your life who see those good things as cheap, as not rightfully earned, and for every wrong you've done, for every flaw in your character, there are other people standing in a different light who see that and they have compassion for you. Like, we are all deeply ambiguous people. And our story sounds different depends on, depending on who's telling it and when. And when we see ourselves, when we look in the mirror, or we encounter ourselves in dreams or we encounter ourselves in the face of our children or our our loved ones. We are deeply ambiguous. Who are you? What is your name? And even if you can say your name, it's Jacob the supplanter or Jacob the follower? Jacob the one who comes close or Jacob the one who deceives? This is why Jesus says, you have to pray and not lose heart. Lose heart about what? Lose heart about yourself. Your place in this life. Your calling. I don't, I'm sure this is not true for everyone, but there are lots of us in this room this morning, including me, who are this far from losing heart? Losing that boldness that says, no, That's not who I am. This is who I am. No, that's not what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. One of the ways in which we've been deceived or misled is to think that God wants servants. But as I've quoted to you many times, Origen is right. God does not want servants. He wants equals. He wants friends. He wants lovers. God did not call us to be his slaves. He called us to be his body, his bride, his presence, one with him. Those that are joined to the Lord are one spirit with him. We are meant to be not just heirs, but joint heirs with Christ. You and I are called not to be slaves, but lords. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And you are meant to live, and I am meant to live, with a sense of boldness in that. I exist because God has called me to serve him and serve my brothers in ways that are lordly, that are like Christ. But I cannot do that with anything like boldness until I've wrestled in prayer enough to have the limp. To have the limp that makes it so that the curse that was assigned to me by some comes out of me as a blessing for others. When Jacob is dying... Again, listen to this passage, Hebrews 11:21. "By faith, Jacob, not Israel. By faith, Jacob when he was dying. Blessed the sons of Joseph. What's happening here? What's happening here? What does Jesus say? You have to be like this little old widow who just keeps... I mean, this, this judge is really, really unjust. I mean, he even says to himself, I do not fear God, nor have regard for anyone. I mean, that's some serious honesty with yourself right there. But this woman is going to wear me down. God help you if you're thinking of any particular person right now. And... Then Jesus says, he tells that story, and then he says, you have to be like that woman. God is not like that judge, but you have to be like that woman. Not because God is reluctant. Because if you don't insist that you matter, if you don't fight for yourself in the presence of God, you will lose heart. Now, this is going to sound blasphemous, but hopefully in light of the sermon, you'll hear me rightly, and I'm almost done. Our problem is not that we don't believe in God. Our problem is that we don't believe in ourselves. And what I mean by that is, as long as we believe in God, but we don't believe in ourselves, we're waiting on God to rescue us. We're waiting on something from outside of our lives to come in and fix the stuff we don't think we can handle. And our God is not that kind of rescuer. Because he means for you to be his joint heir, his co-laborer, his co-regent. You're meant to grow up into authority. And he can't spoon-feed everything to you if you're going to walk with authority. If you're going to have some say in the person that you are, you've got to wrestle it out with God. Wrestle it out with yourself. Do not lose heart. You are Jacob. Not the Jacob that Esau says you are, the Jacob that God knows you are. You are Jacob as Israel, not Jacob as a devious deceiver. But you won't know that for yourself until you fight it out. And you may not know it for years, even if you fight it out. But here's the good news. Will the Son of Man come? Will he find faith when he comes? Yes. Because he's going to keep showing up in your life until you get upset enough that you fight back. Faith is that fight in you that says death does not get the last word over me. My failures don't get the last word over me. The accusations of people around me don't get the last words over me. I am given by God the grace to determine who I'm going to be for my wife, for my boys, for my friends, for my neighbors, for my students. I get to say that, and you get to say that. And at any point in your life, you are not determined by what's happened up to this moment. At any point in your life, you can stand up in the presence of God and say, no, that's not who I am. I will not lose heart. I will not be defined by that or that or this person or that person. I will be defined by the promise of God that's always been true of me, And when that sparks in you, that's the faith. That's the faith that leads to justice. Amen.